0: Hello, and welcome to the Dog Watch. This is Michael Canfield. Much like seeing a gray wolf in the wild, a chance to speak with wolf researcher Dave Meach is a rare and inspiring opportunity. Dave's list of positions include being a senior research scientist with the Biological Resources Division of the USGS, an adjunct professor in the Department of Fisheries, Wildlife, and Conservation Biology, and Department of Ecology, Evolution, and Behavior at the University of Minnesota. He has studied wolves since 1958 and founded the International Wolf Center. A gander at Dave's publications, reveals the depths of his investigations. You might start with his books, such as The Wolves of Isle Royale from 1966, and read right through ten more before getting to Wolves on the Hunt from 2015. In looking through his list of scholarly publications, I lost count on the 20th page because I kept making notes about interesting biology from the references. Suffice it to say, Dave knows more about wolves than anyone else you or I will ever meet. Given that Dave is our guest, our featured dog for this episode is the gray wolf, Canis lupus, which is, of course, the Ur dog, the ancestral dog. The gray wolf once had the, one of the largest distributions of any terrestrial mammal, which consisted of the majority of the entire northern hemisphere and two-thirds of North America. This was massively reduced by humans, especially in the 18th and 19th centuries, although it had been ongoing since the Middle Ages. Only recently, around the time Dave began work on wolves in the 1960s, had they started to recover. Along with what we learned from Dave today, a trove of additional information about wolves can be found on the International Wolf Center website. Without further ado, here is our conversation with Dave Meech. Hello Dave, thanks so much for joining us on the Dog Watch. You're welcome Mike, glad to do it. Part of the purpose of the Dog Watch is giving people windows into dogs and how people think about dogs you have spent a great deal of time with wolves in the field which i would imagine makes you see dogs a little bit differently than someone who hasn't done that someone's just like me who's had family dogs etc so my first question for you is when you look at dogs what kinds of things do you see that are similar to the kinds of things that behaviors attributes that you saw um, with gray wolves in the field. And then what things with dogs seem really different that, oh, those things are gone or those things are novel um, it's through the domestication process?
1: Wow. Um, well, uh, of course, it depends on exactly what a person is looking at or looking for. You know, when I look at a dog and it's uh, moving around a neighborhood or something or on the end of somebody's leash it you know the it generally conforms in terms of its movements and its behavior its general behavior very much like uh, like wolves and and a dog is a um, basically uh it's a domesticated wolf and so the two animals are very very similar the um you know if if one takes a closer look and um you know starts sizing up the dog and and seeing you know, what, what is it doing that a wolf often does or something? Well, you see such things as it's doing a lot of sniffing of the ground or of, of a, a bush or a rock or anything else. Well, that's, you know, that's what wolves do. Um, they get a lot of information, and the dogs do too, by doing all that sniffing. That's their world, really. It's more of a, a smell world, an olfactory world, far more than the, that of the human, you know. Uh, So you see them do that. You see them bark at other dogs and sniff other dogs. You know, that's exactly what wolves do. When one wolf sees another wolf, um, it usually sniffs noses, uh, sniffs butts, that type of thing. And um, um, they may romp and play a little bit. Wolves do that. So from a very general viewpoint, the two the behaviors of both of them that a, a untrained person would see, it, it, it would be that they just look alike. Hmm. They behave similarly. They travel similarly, um, that type of thing. One would have to go very deeply and specifically into the life of a dog uh, to find differences between dogs and wolves.
0: That's fascinating to me. I, I really wondered, I could have imagined you, uh, given your expertise, going either way, you know, possibly saying, look, what I see, they're very, very different. And it's interesting that you're actually saying that there's so many similarities. Obviously, they're differences, right? Like breeds, et cetera. But fundamentally, you see a lot of similarities in the, in the structure of their behaviors, et cetera.
1: Let's just put it this way. A dog is basically a wolf. Excellent. Um, Another question
0: is, I've, I've seen pictures of you sitting in the field, taking notes, looking out at wolves that are fairly close. And, you know, many of us think... About wolves as predators, etc., and in the public consciousness, especially through Hollywood and images in in literature of the wolves circling the fire and those kinds of things. Um, I also read that there hasn't been a major wolf incident, at least since 1902, where they have attacked a human. And I don't know if that's true or not, but it's not common. So. I'm wondering what the real what the reality is. Should people be scared of wolves and and were you ever scared of the wolves
1: you were studying? Well, uh, let me bring you up to date on um, the information about all that. There are, you know, um, first of all, uh, wolves were pretty much wiped out of most of the forty eight states uh, by the by nineteen seventy or so. And so there weren't that many around in the forty eight states. Minnesota continue to have wolves, maybe as many as 700 or so, um, and then they were protected by the Endangered Species Act. Now they've come back, not just in Minnesota, but across the Midwest and, and also out west and some in the southwest um, through reintroduction and that type of thing. Um, so there haven't been many occasions for wolf mm-hmm. interactions with people for many, many years in the 48 states. However, they have continued to live in Canada all that time. And um, so looking back in, over the last 10 or 15 years, there actually are a couple of cases where wolves have killed wild wolves, un, uh, rather healthy wild wolves, not rabbit, but healthy, have killed people, uh, one in Canada and one in Alaska in the last 15 years. Now, that's not a lot when you consider right. all the people that are camping every day in Minnesota, uh, in wolf country in Northern Minnesota, for example, and all across Canada and Alaska, uh, with all the interactions there could be between wolves and people, that's not very many, but there have been a few and a few other wolf attacks. So I should certainly say this, that the wolf being a large carnivore, like a bear and, and a cougar, that type of thing, um, they, you know, folks need to be wary of them I, for example, if I lived in Ely and had children up there, grandchildren, I would be careful of letting them run around in the backyard alone. Um, You know, you just have to be careful, whether it be for wolves or bears or dogs for that matter. Um, But one shouldn't be uh, go around all the time being afraid to move around in the forest or camp up there, canoe or anything like that, just because there's wolves up there. The chances of being attacked by a wolf are extremely low. But you know, the wolf can be dangerous to people. Let's let's leave it like that. Yeah. But when you were out
0: there, um you didn't feel a, f- a fear f- um, no, from I, the wolves
1: that you're studying, or no, that's correct. I, I didn't. Um there was uh, there was one very short occasion for 30 seconds or so way up uh, on Alsmir Island in Canada far northern Canada, where a uh, wolf that was very very unafraid of me, I mean, uh, I I had been working with that wolf and uh, had been within a few feet of him many, many times. Um, One time I was lying down on the tundra and the wolf came around behind me, couldn't see it, and I didn't know what it might be doing. And I actually felt some fear at that time. I, I imagined, well, the wolf could you know, kind of sniff the back of my neck or something, I might jump up. And maybe if I did that, it would trigger the wolf and all. So I've, I did feel some genuine fear for about 30 seconds. And I related that to my partner who was uh, 10 feet away uh, watching me and the wolf. And, um, you know, I mentioned to him that I, I felt fear. But other than that, no, I haven't. And yeah. I had no reason to. Right. Um, you know, I've, I've been around them enough in the woods um, and, and, and not been attacked to have been fairly confident that the, you know, that I had nothing to fear.
0: Right. Yeah. I think that, that it seems like what you're saying, and it's been my experience after spending a whole summer up in the boundary waters, I don't think I ever, I heard them. I never saw one. Sure. And you spent a, a career, you know, not your whole career, but many times and probably saw more dangerous animals at different times that weren't wolves. Um, so yeah and
1: and the reason you didn't see any is cuz they're more afraid of you. Right. afraid of them, you know, in most cases certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Um I looked
0: back through some of your scientific papers and kind of went back through um, some of the references and found a, 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 you know maybe 50 that I wanted to ask you about <laughs> because you know it's fascinating what you've done and a couple of things that I saw, for example, one was observation of a swimming wolf killing a swimming deer. Yep. Another one was possible use of wolf den over several centuries. And also you spent a lot of work on anal secretions and wolf vocalization. So a lot of interesting things. And I'm wondering if there are a couple of um, things that you saw in the field or that you observed that were particularly rare or particularly exhilarating for you that you came back to camp and were like, oh my gosh, I can't believe what I just saw or you know, this surprised me completely. W- were there some of those kinds of things? And I wonder if there's one or two you could relate.
1: Well, one that, <clears throat> one that immediately comes to mind, um, when I was working up on Ellesmere Island where the wolves are tame to people, um, and I could be, I could actually live with them and I every day was on a four-wheeler and sitting around their den and they would come up to me and I actually did some experimental feeding of them and that kind of thing. And um, one of those wolves got uh, very, um, well, used to being fed because I would, I would weigh a certain amount of food and feed it to him. The idea being um, I wanted to see how much he had to eat before it wanted to go back to the den and feed the pucks. So I was used to feeding them like parts of arctic hares and stuff like that, and this wolf got pretty bold. And um, I had a um, uh, I had a little bucket on attached to my four wheeler, and that's where I, I fed him from things in like that. And I was done feeding him, and um, and that wolf um, wanted more to eat, and um, so it kept coming around me and sniffing around my four wheeler and and um, I would, I would try to gun the engine, and I'd yell at the wolf, and um, it wouldn't move. It, it, it was just so used to being around me. Um, so I, I thought, well, I'll just drive away. Well, I started driving away, and the wolf was right with me all the time, <laughs> sniffing uh, my legs and, and my food bucket, which had nothing in it anymore, and it became a pest. And I tried to figure out, how can I break this wolf of that, because – every, you know, he'd be just staying right there with me and pestering me. So I had had occasion, I'd been feeding some birds, uh, long tail Jaegers, and um, they got p- pesty one time as well. And uh, I figured out how to to, uh, to break them of that. And so I thought I'll try the same thing on this wolf. <clears throat> so what I did, like I had done with these birds, I picked up some chunks of of um, hardened tundra uh, soil, Hmm. just clumps of dried soil. And I started throwing those little clumps of them to the wolf, and the wolf would uh, grab it just like it was food and eat it and then, you know, spit it out and that kind of thing. And I kept doing that. And after um, about close to 50 times, I did that, and that wolf finally turned around and walked off. And I thought, oh, good! I finally am done with him. So I started up my um, four wheeler, started driving away, and he came right back over. So I stopped and I did the whole thing again. This time about thirty times, and he kept doing the same thing, spitting it out, taking it each one, spitting it out, and finally walked started walking away, and I drove off again, and he came back. And I did this again, and I think it was somewhere around fifteen times. And finally, this time I broke that wolf of um, of being, uh, you know, habituated to or conditioned, I should say, conditioned to taking food from me. It took that many times. I had no idea it would do. It would take that many times to do that. But anyway, that was one of the interesting things. Um, yeah, you know, I um, I was also very close to one couple of times uh, that had just killed a musk rock, a muskrat's calf, and um, I was there watching the animal feed on the, on the uh, kill, and um, one of the things I had never been able, been close enough to watch before was when they eat parts of the gut, they shake it, and they shake the material from the gut. In other words, they like the intestine itself, but not the contents of the intestine. And to get rid of those contents, it would chew a length of gut, and then it would it would wave it back and forth until the internal part, you know, the basically the the food in the in the intestine, which would have been plant material because this was a muskox, um, it was all gone, and then it would chew that eat the gut, the whole gut that way. So that was something I learned that. Um, Immediately comes to mind. There are many things. It's just right, uh, you know, bringing them to mind.
0: Where would that have been with the muskox? Where geographically? Where would that have been?
1: Well, it's on um, an island called Ellesmere Island. It's so oh, that's um, Ellesmere, okay. Yeah, and it's right. about um, six hundred miles from the North Pole. Yeah.
0: Right. Yep. Incredible. So you also have done, uh, you know, a lot of discussion of wolf uh, social sort of structure now I wonder if you can just explain the difference between family and pack like what that for people who might not
1: understand okay well I think the simplest way to look at at this um, comparison between a family and a pack is that basically most wolf packs are merely a family of wolves a pair of adults and their offspring and their offspring of uh, actually, a, a pack of wolves, the average pack, is very similar to a human family. It has a pair of parents and then a several different uh, litters of offspring. So uh, a well-established pack would have uh, the pups of the, of the year, ones that are born usually in the spring, maybe like they bear five or six of them. And, um, and then they probably would have yearlings. That is, the, they would be the pups from the previous year. And uh, probably one or two two two-year-olds that have been the pups from years before. That would be comparable to a human family of the father and a mother, uh, a teenager, maybe um, one or two, uh, you know, eight or nine-year-olds, and then a new baby or something. Uh, Now, it it can be more complicated than that. And in areas where um, wolves prey on larger prey like moose and caribou and that kind of thing, they sometimes have uh, some of the daughters stay with the pack and produce pups as well. And so you can have a larger pack that has not only the original mother, but a daughter or two that are also producing young as well. And so in those packs, they could be 15 or 20 animals. That right. But still, they're basically related.
0: Right. And I appreciated on your website, you have some really good up two very good videos which i appreciate a lot um one with you in cartoon which is super cool <laughs> to be have been immortalized that way but but kind of disabusing people of this idea of the alpha male etc so if people are interested in that question you've you've really articulated that quite well um i'm also curious there's this idea of um there are two ideas that are in the public consciousness and i hear people talking about one is sort of the leader of the pack right And another is a lone wolf. And I'm wondering sort of for you as a researcher, right, we say those things out here and, you know, a civilian would say those things. What do they mean
1: to you? What's the reality? Okay, let's let's take the lone wolf first. Um, A real lone wolf uh, is an animal that has left its pack and it it becomes sexually mature. Think of it as a, 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 say, a a 20-year-old human, Uh, leaves the pack. Goes off and tries to find a member of the opposite opposite sex that's doing the same thing, and pair bond with it and start its own pack, just like a human offspring would go and get married to someone and start their own family. Um, that's a true lone wolf uh, before it meets uh, another uh, a mate. Okay, and then that, that could that animal could be a lone wolf for a year or two. Um, Or it could find a mate quickly. So it's hard to say how long that real lone wolf would be a a, a loner. Um, The other kind of wolf that is often mistaken for a lone wolf is a member of a pack that has just temporarily, like within the last few hours, left the pack and is hunting on its own. And that happens like in Minnesota uh, during the summer, like right now, most wolves um, are traveling alone and they come back to the den. There's a den in the spring where they uh, have their pups and a uh, pack, let's say, of uh, parents and a few yearlings and a two-year-old maybe. They're, they live around the den and during the day, they you'd find them around the den. So they'd all be together. But then come evening, they all start off in a different direction on their own and seek food separately. And so if you see them it's and that's the commonest way a person in Minnesota would see a wolf would be crossing the road in front of you or somewhere along the road almost certainly you'd see it as a lone animal but it's not really a true lone wolf it's a pack member that's just a few hours ago would have been with the pack. Hmm. So mm-hmm. okay so much for the lone wolf. The leader of the pack. Yes there there is a leader of the pack and we're still trying to figure out whether it's the male or the female. Uh, And and for good reason, probably because they're both equally leaders. Um, In some activities, one might prevail for a while. That is, one sex or the other might prevail for another uh, for a while. But um, they both tend to do the same things. And on a year-round basis, I would have to say they are both um, leaders of the pack. Uh, Hmm. That is, If when I count how many times the male wolf from around the den, the adult male leaves the den and I count uh, and the rest of the pack follows them. And I count how many times a female does that, leads a pack away from the den and the rest of the pack follow. It's about equal. They they both tend to lead about equally.
0: Right. A, A couple of quick questions. One is. Especially at the dog park or wherever, when a when a dog is being aggressive, a lot of times someone will say, "Well, my dog's just an alpha dog." And my sense is that, from your work and um, from what I've learned from you, it seems like that would be better stated: my dog's being aggressive. Is yes. that how, I mean, is that a, is that yes. an okay thing? I mean, I'm not going to lecture anybody at yeah. the dog park, right? But, no, I, but- is that accurate?
1: Yeah, right, right. The, this whole alpha term um, has, is, has been misused, and and I'm responsible for some of that because before we knew much about wolves, um, the, uh, the f- people who had studied them um, looked at wolf social behavior by putting unrelated wolves together in a compound, like in a zoo. And right. uh, sure, when you do that with wolves, or actually other species, deer or anything else, um, they fight each, each other and, and they form a, a pecking order. Most people don't understand what a pecking order is among chickens. And, and it's a, the top one is called the alpha, it rules the others. But in the wild, uh, there is no such thing. The, the, um, as I mentioned, to, to become a pack member, uh, a young wolf finds another young wolf of the opposite sex, they mate produce pups and they are automatically dominant to all their offspring but that doesn't make them alpha animals it just means they're dominant just like a human father or mother dominant to their offspring right. same way with the with the um, wolves and and so the but but because we didn't know that and i wrote a book that publicized what we knew at the time and that uh, that book is still in print incidentally after 50 years Um, so people are still reading that and they hear the, uh, the term alpha and, and, uh, they think that it's valid, but actually the, what we used to call a alpha male right now, we just say it's the breeding male or the father and the alpha female is just merely the mother or the breeding female.
0: Great. Yep. That's super helpful. Two other short things that I wanted to touch on, and then I will let you go. Um, Secretions from the anal glands and the anal glands. I mean, that's obviously something that humans with dogs see all the time and don't have much understanding of what those are. I noticed that you published papers on it, etc. So I wonder if you might just shed a little knowledge for someone who would see that behavior. And I know there's marking when they're defecating too, but that's not something that
1: someone would know much about. Right. Um, well, I mentioned already that the the dog, the, uh, wolf's world and the dog's world, too, is really very much an olfactory world. That is, uh, they understand the world very much through smelling different parts of the world. Uh, they have a much better sense of smell than humans do. And so they're always sniffing different things. And they learn from that. They get information from things that they sniff. One of the things that they learn from is the urine of other of other uh, dogs or wolves, and or the feces, uh, the scats of other dogs or wolves, and on those scats uh, is is anal gland secretion. So when when the scat comes out, there's a, a layer of the uh, material from the anal gland that's cast on the edge of the scat. So um, it tells. So when a, a dog or a wolf sniffs another scat, it actually gets some information. We don't know, as scientists, we don't know all the information they get from that. We're still trying to find that out, but they are getting information from that, and that's what those glands really are for. And also, you know, when dogs or wolves smell each other's butt, that's what they're smelling, basically, is these anal glands.
0: yeah. So we we don't know too much about the information from the anal gland secretions From urine... Is it a similar thing or is it mostly just territoriality that, you know, we still where... don't,
1: you know, we don't know um, what information they're getting from it. We presume that they're getting information like what is the gender or the sex of that animal that, that left the urine or this cat for that matter. And, um, and they may well get to age. And maybe, in fact, uh, if I had to bet, I would say they probably identify each other from both the urine and, and from the anal gland secretion. But I don't know that we haven't proven that. Yeah.
0: Right. Do you mean as individuals, that's an individual marking?
1: Yeah. That, yep. that it's, that it's um, Rover. Uh, one, mo- one dog comes up and smells Rover scat. Uh, it, it probably says, Oh, that's Rover.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Uh,
1: spot. This one's from spot. You know, I right. think that's what actually is happening, but right. it's, very complex to try to, you know, get the information uh, uh, to right. be sure of that.
0: Yeah. And know. then I guess also they would know that that's not a dog I recognize. That's not an individual yeah, sure. I know. This right, is a foreign, right. so yeah. I get it. Yeah. That's fascinating. It's actually interesting, really, that we don't know that yet, right? It's it's a hard oh, problem, yes. sounds like. That's yeah. the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Last question. Um, vocalizations. We all know bo- dogs bark. We hear our dogs bark, but in wolves, we we know what a wolf howl is, right? We recognize that in the movies. But you've done research on this, right? How would you describe vocalizations in wolves and 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 then sort of dogs by by proxy? What are they for? What are they doing? And what are they communicating? How? What are the ways that they use vocalizations?
1: Oh well, uh, there's several ways, and actually. Uh, I think they're pretty much the same in the dog as they are in the wolf. And it's just that uh, their vocal cords are a little different. So that, for example, when a dog barks, I mean, okay, let's just say uh, from, with the vocal communication, recognize the howl, but some dogs howl, of course, Uh, we recognize a bark, we recognize a whimper and a whine. Um, And so those are all types of vocal communication. Uh, The barking uh, with, from a wolf, that's usually an alarm uh, or a threat, and it could be both at the same time. Um, so if some strange um, creature like a muskox comes around the den or even a human sometime, a, a wolf uh, will give the alarm and make a very rough kind of a bark. Doesn't sound exactly like a dog bark, but it is staccato. It is, it is a, a kind of a sharp kind of a thing. Um, and then the howling uh, that has um, different functions. Um, it, it, it advertises the territory of a wolf uh, so that other wolves when they hear that howl, they know that they're, you know that there's another wolf pack around and they can tell pretty easily how far uh, that pack is. And it's a warning, just like bird song is a warning. Um, uh, maintaining or advertising territories. So that's uh, that's one function of the howl. Another is <clears throat> when the wolves are all uh, like uh, in Minnesota, when they're hunting and they're maybe chase something and they're all scattered out in the forest and they're trying to get back together, um, you know, they howl and each one knows where the other is and they all get together by, by listening. And then the third thing is the third uh, function of a howl is that it, it? does motivate the animals uh, to to go out and um, and get active and go hunting. So, for example, I've watched a female howl, uh, the breeding female, um, wake up the male and and uh, move move off and sit and howl and try to get the the male to to get moving with her, and then he might howl and. And she'll howl, and then she'll move on, and then he'll howl, and she'll howl, and then he moves on a little more, and finally she gets him going, and she goes out with him sometimes as far as maybe a mile from the den. Then she turns around and comes back and lets, him, <laughs> lets him go off and get something to eat.
0: <laughs> oh, it sounds – there's something familiar uh, about that, yeah. I, I just have to yeah. say. Um, you
1: shouldn't say it.
0: But. Yeah, no, it's uh, just about – Relationships among individuals, right? That they're competing interests and trying to motivate each other, and it sounds like yeah. the uh, acoustic uh, communication does something about it. Does it play a role in in finding mates at all, or is it not so much like? Uh, well, prob- very
1: probably, but but I can't, I don't know of the good evidence for that. I, okay. I mean, very probably, lone wolves are out there howling a lot and they find each yep. other. Right? But that's a real hard thing to. You have to be with them all the time and all that to, to know that, you know?
0: Right, right. Well, I I could ask you questions for hours, Dave. Um, super fascinating. And, and your work is just uh, um, inspiring to a biologist like me, and I, I know like a lot of our listeners. So thank you for that. And thank you for all you've um, all the knowledge you brought forth for us and, and to that we can use and continue to learn. So thanks for joining us, and, and thank you for your time.
1: Well, you're quite welcome, Mike. It was a pleasure.
0: Thanks again to Dave Meach for spending time with us today, as he represents someone who was actually on the original Dog Watch. On Ellesmere Island and Isle Royal, studying wolves before many of us, including me, were born. Don't forget. Send the dog watch details along to friends and neighbors and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts to send a call to all of the lone wolves out there. Until next time, this is Michael Canfield, thanking you for joining us on the dog watch.